Good afternoon. Oh, man. Really? It's not going to go like that, is it? This is way too exciting for that kind of response. Good afternoon. Yeah, there we go. We usually do that for the children's sermon, you know? We always have to ask them a second time. Um, if you were here this morning, we have been using the following statement a lot today. Today is an exciting day in the life of this community of faith, or in the words of Sarah R., for the family of God that is gathered here. It's, it, it's an exciting day. I'm getting a little choked up thinking about it. We baptized six infants this morning. Right here, the water is barely dried off the tile. And we've gathered this afternoon because a community somewhere a long time ago baptized a little baby named Sarah R. And they made promises to her that they were going to nurture her in faith, that they were going to tell her about the story of Jesus, and that they were going to love her no matter what. And we, because the promises they made along with her mom and her dad, we get to celebrate in this service of installation. Now, let me tell you, I, I've been thinking about it a lot um, over the last couple of days. We've done this exact service a lot in the history of this church. We've had a ton of pastors, and uh, um, your entire pastoral team is gathered here this afternoon, and we, we, we count ourselves um, blessed to, to be part of the clergy staff here at Preston Hollow, but never before in this church's history, ever, have we ever gathered for an installation service for the associate pastor of youth and young adult ministry. First time ever. And we've gathered here in the afternoon after many of us already worshiped this morning to give great thanks to God once again for the many moments, the thousands of moments that have led to this very place, back to the font, it is good and right, that it should be front and center for us. We've gathered to give God great thanks for the life and the gifts of Sarah R. It's amazing when you look around the sanctuary this afternoon, uh, for someone who has been here barely a year, for this many people to have gathered, because she has made a connection with each and every one of you, and the gifts that God has given her shine through in everything she does. So friends, with every part of our being, we're gonna lift our voices in song, we're going to hear the word read and proclaimed, and as an act of worship, we're going to lay our hands on and ask God to bless this community of faith through Sarah R.'s ministry. So I want to say thank you for being here. This is the business that we are about as the church, and what a gift today is. So I have to say these words. Grace Presbytery is gathered here through this commission, all of Grace Presbytery to lead in the worship of God and in the service of installation to the ministry of word and sacrament in this place. So friends, please join me in our responsive call to worship. God of grace, I want to be a faithful, I want to be faithful like Joseph. I want to be as brave as Esther. I want to be as bold as Noah. I want to be resilient like Mary. I want to be loyal like Ruth. I want to be as strong as Harriet Tubman. I want to be as passionate as Martin Luther King Jr. I want to be as loving like Mother Teresa. I want to be gracious like Jesus Christ, God of grace. As we gather here to worship you, turn us into disciples. Draw forth the best versions of ourselves today and every day. Let us worship God. Amen.
Friends, God does not call us to be perfect. God calls us to be kind. God does not call us to be flawless. God calls us to be faithful. God does not say three strikes and you're out. God says, please don't give up. Therefore, knowing that we are wrapped in God's grace, 
let us confess our sins together. Let us pray. You asked for my hands, that you might use them for your purpose. I gave them for a moment, then withdrew them, for the work was hard. You asked for my mouth to speak out against injustice. I gave you a whisper that I might not be accused. You asked for my eyes to see the pain of poverty. I closed them, for I did not want to see. You asked for my life, that you might work through me. I gave a small part, that I might not get too involved. Lord, forgive my calculated efforts to serve you, and forgive me for forgetting the call you placed on my life to be a disciple of your love. Renew me so that I may work to bring about your kingdom here on earth. Amen. People of God, before we even know who we are, we are gods. We are claimed, loved, forgiven, and sent. That is the promise of your baptism. That is the promise of the gospel. Hear and believe the good news of the gospel. We are saved by grace As we prepare our hearts and minds to hear God's message to us in Scripture, please join me in prayer, a prayer written by the youth here at Preston Hollow for such a time as this. All-knowing God, let your word be a beacon when we're lost in a sea of doubt. Let these words give us courage to face your call, our call. Grant us clarity to see beyond the fog of our imperfections and open our hearts to the promise of your grace. Amen.
I thank you for the privilege of being with you this afternoon. This was not my plan to be here. My plan was to be back there on the back pew somewhere weeping. <laughs> Tears of joy and gratitude. My daughter, knowing that uh, neither she nor I enjoy it when I blubber in public, she said, well, why don't you preach instead? assuming that I could not weep and preach. We will see if it works. Listen to this. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices so that they could go and anoint Jesus' dead body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they came to the tomb. They were saying to each other, who is going to roll the stone away from the entrance for us? When they looked up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away. It was a very large stone. Going to the tomb, they saw a young man in a white robe seated on the right side, and they were startled. But he said to them, don't be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has been raised. He isn't here. Look, this is the place where they laid him. Go tell his disciples, especially Peter, that he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Overcome with terror and dread, they fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Sarah R., child of the covenant. In just a few moments, you'll respond to questions that every pastor and every officer has answered. In doing so, you join an unbroken line of pastors in your own family that reaches all the way back to the 1830s. But more importantly, you are joining a line of faithful Christians who have sought to answer and live these questions that reaches back to the early church. Now, if you've not been to an installation service before, you should know that when the questions are asked, she's going to say yes. <laughs> There's absolutely no suspense here. The other thing is that an installation service seems like a lot of hoopla for a pastor, and I am profoundly honored to be sharing in this, and I do know your pastor fairly well. I am one of few who can tell you that she scored a 14 on a golf hole. <laughs> one hole. Putt-putt. <laughs> I could tell you about the poor guy in elementary school who tried to intimidate her. That was a mistake. He said, you are such a girl, you can't even eat an ant. Sarah had swallowed eight ants before he knew what hit him. He ran and cried to the camp counselor. I can tell you that her first boyfriend 
was named Spike. God has yet to invent a father who is okay with his daughter dating a man named Spike. I didn't know him, but I had a friend of mine who did. He told him, he said, Spike, look, the only thing you need to know about Tom is he loves his daughter more than life itself, and he has absolutely no qualms about going back to prison. <laughs> I can also tell you that she's made me laugh more than any human being on the face of the earth. And when she sings, I know God is in the room. And when it comes to matters of faith, more than she could possibly know, she has been my teacher. Now, I know Sarah would not want me to tell you any of this, so I'm not going to. <laughs> I'll just say it's one of the greatest honors of my ministry to be with you in this moment. Having said all of that, you need to know installation is not really about the minister. It's about the church. And I will say this, Reverend Sarah, you have not chosen the best time to become a minister in the Presbyterian Church. You've chosen a great church, but as a denomination, we've had better days, my friends. The fact of the matter is, as a denomination, we haven't grown in membership since 1965. This congregation is vibrant and alive and a light to this city, but over half of the congregations in our denomination have fewer members than we have in this service. They have less than 100 members, and a majority of our, of our congregations very shortly will not be able to afford a pastor. And we as a church have spent the last generation arguing about whether the LBGT sons and daughters of our members would be welcomed in this church. As some have insisted, the only way to demonstrate fidelity to the gospel is to keep them out. And it is not uncommon to find on the evening news stories of Christian leaders who have been indicted for embezzling money or abusing children or of congregations splitting over one thing or another. It's embarrassing. So Sarah, many of your generation have looked at the church and said, well, if that's what it means to be church, I'm out. I'm spiritual, but forget the church, it's too much drama. The truth is, these are not the best days you have chosen to be a minister in the church. Now, now gratefully, let's be honest, they're not the worst days either. I mean, I haven't done a survey, but I haven't found a Presbyterian who believes in slavery anymore, so that's an improvement, right? There, there was a day when, when Native Americans were marched west on a trail of tears and the church blessed it as missionary work. That wasn't so great. There was a day when the job of the usher was to welcome the right folks and to keep non-white folks out. And it's only been since the 50s when the General Assembly gathered men all in hush puppies and vitalis, and they decided that God might survive if a woman preached. How about that? There have been worse days for the church. There have surely been better days. These are our days.
These are the days in which we are called to be faithful to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. So I suggest that these days we listen to the angels. Rod Kolodze, Rod Kolodze was on U.S. Air Flight 1549 when Captain Chelly Sullenberger set it down in the Hudson. Do you, do you remember? Kolodze said as that plane was silently descending, he had one thought. He thought, I will be dead in 90 seconds. I hope I did what I was supposed to with my life. Have you ever wondered that? It's not the bucket list question, did I do what I wanted to do? That's a different question. This is a question about calling. Have I done what I was supposed to do with my life? Now, I've never been on a crashing airplane, but I am in my late 50s. There's some parallels. And so time has taught me that the answer to that question is usually mixed. Have I done what I'm supposed to? Sometimes. Sometimes. I take comfort in the wisdom of Hans Kuhn, who once said, I do not write Christian theology because I am a particularly good Christian. I write because I believe Christianity is a particularly good thing. Preston Hollow, you do church well, particularly well. The entire denomination is grateful for you, for what you do and how you do it. You provide inspiration and hope, encouragement. But I would imagine, and I don't know specifics, but I would imagine that this church is like every church, and so there are times we know that our faithfulness is something of a mixed bag because to follow Jesus, particularly these days, requires some courage. So I'm grateful for those Easter women. They went to the tomb. The angel said, do not be alarmed. It's better translated, do not be afraid. That's what angels always say. Have you noticed? It's what they always say. To Zechariah in the temple, do not be afraid. To Mary Bashald in blue, do not be afraid. To the shepherds keeping watch, sore afraid. Do not be afraid. It's obviously the first thing they teach you in angel school, say this. We could use some of those Easter angels these days because we live in scary times. And scare is a debilita fear is a debilitating thing. I remember one, one night when our kids were young, I was awakened in the night by an unwelcome sound. Someone was in the house. In that moment, you go from groggy to hypervigilant. I got out of the bed, I walked through our house, I'm sure looking like a cross between Barney Fife and Inspector Clouseau. I dialed 911, 911, what's your emergency? Someone's in the house. About the time she told me that help was on the way, I told her I could see the intruder. His name was Skippy, and he was a gerbil or hamster or one of those rat-like creatures that populate preschool classrooms and run on that wheel. My children had volunteered to keep Skippy and his nocturnal self for the holidays. No one bothered to tell Dad, so there I am in the kitchen with 911 on the line, terrified of Skippy, who's home for the holidays. Had an angel been in that kitchen that night, she might have said, Tom, 
There's nothing to be afraid of. It's just skippy. But that's not what they usually say. There's nothing to be afraid of. They know better. We live in a frightening world. So far this year, and I think for the first time, more Americans have been killed in school than in the armed services. We live in a time when race is still a divider among us, and if you read black intellectuals like Ta-Nehisi Coates and others, there is less hope that we're going to figure it out than there was when King was marching. In every relevant field of scientific study, there is agreement that the planet is sick and it's getting sicker and it will hurt us. We can't wish it away. We are presently fighting the longest war in American history, but we don't feel it because we have outsourced the suffering this time. I wish the angel had said, it's all right. There's nothing to be afraid of, church. It's just skippy. The angels never say that because it wouldn't be true. We live in frightening times and in a frightening world. Fear is so common. We don't even know that's what we're talking about. I, I asked a woman in my church, I said, how's your dad? About the same, she said. I brought up moving to the Presbyterian home, but, but he says it would kill him to leave the house. They're all right, I, I hope. You hear what she's saying? She's afraid. What do you hear from the kids? I say. Jeremy's a junior at state. He's having a good time, I suppose. I never hear from him. I said, I know how to fix that. She said, yeah? I said, write him a letter. Old, old time snail mail. Dear Jeremy, here's a check for $100. Buy something fun for yourself. Love mom. Mail the letter, just don't include the check. You'll get a call. Hey mom. <laughs> She said, I'll try that. She said, Davis, the, David, the oldest, he's waiting tables, doesn't really know what he wants to do, says he's fine. I'm sure he's fine. She's afraid. The reason the angels always say do not be afraid is not because angels are scary. It's because we are always already afraid. We live in a terrorist-defined, climate-changed Nuclear-threatened, cancer-embattled, mass-shooting, recurring, hurricane-battered, opioid-addicted, sexually dangerous, poverty-crushed time. Fear and anxiety are the nitrogen and oxygen of the cultural atmosphere that we breathe. We are afraid. So why do you suppose the angels say, don't be afraid? It sounds naive to tell you the truth. We are afraid, and our fear is changing us. When you're afraid, it's hard to be your best self. When I'm afraid, my neighbor becomes suspicious. When I'm afraid, my enemy is expendable. When I'm afraid, my best actions are compromised and my more base motivations are justified. If I understand the text, the angels say, do not be afraid, not because they're naive, but because they know a love lives among us that gives us courage in frightening times. You don't have to be afraid because Jesus is alive. 
and it's going ahead of you, so follow him. It takes courage because the Easter story, the Easter story is about the big things. It's not just about getting us into heaven. It is first about getting some heaven into us. The risen Christ sees a way of our being with one another that we have never known. And he wants to lead us to it. He's begging us to follow him. But it's hard because it takes courage. I've seen it sometimes, that kind of courage. Sarah was an elder in the Presbyterian Church in South Carolina. Sarah had a routine medical procedure, required a pint of blood. It was the mid-80s when the protocol to protect the nation's blood supply was lacking. She quickly got HIV, which became AIDS. In those days, the only thing worse than the disease was the stigma. Her church loved her, but they were afraid of her. But one Sunday, Sarah walked down to the front of the sanctuary and she said, I want to tell you something. I have AIDS and it's going to kill me. And I don't have long now. I know some of you are praying for me and I am grateful for that. But this is why I'm here. I hate what has happened to me, but I want you to know that I am at peace. Jesus also suffered. Jesus was also afraid. And he said that suffering will not have the last word, so I am not afraid. And then she said, and when it comes to you, and the dark day will come to you, remember I was here. Do not be afraid. We could use some courageous Easter angels like Sarah these days. When it comes to following Jesus, we know this. Sometimes we get it right. Sometimes we stumble. Because it takes courage to really love your neighbor when you don't get to choose your neighbor. And it takes courage to love the enemy, to go the second mile, to, to strive to make right all the things that have gone wrong. And when we can't make them right to beg forgiveness, takes courage to tell the truth in a day and a culture that no longer values truth. It takes courage to care for a planet when science falls victim to politics. And resurrection is about all of that. It takes courage to follow Jesus these days, which is why sometimes we stumble. This and I'm finished. Ben Komen. Ben Komen ran cross country at Central High School in Anderson, South Carolina. He never won a race. He never beat anyone across the finish line, but people from all over town would come out to watch Ben Komen run. Ben had cerebral palsy. And CP seized his muscles and contorted his body, leaving him to lunge and falter, tripping over bottle caps and twigs. In almost every race he would fall, and when he fell, he fell hard because he couldn't react quickly enough to catch himself. And he was slow. By the time he reached the finish line, all the other kids had time to go get a shower and a cheeseburger, but none of them did it. They waited, and when he got near the finish line, they all ran out. And they ran across it with him. 
grown men would stand there twisting their jaws, trying to keep the tears in their eyes and off of their cheeks. Now why do you suppose the whole town turns out to watch a kid run who's never going to win a race? I think they did it because they were so much like him. Or maybe because they wanted to be like him. They watch as people who know that we aren't always particularly good at the things that matter most. We know what it's like to be a bit spastic about the soul. So they watch a guy who reminds them, you don't have to be particularly good to do a particularly good thing. This world is a terrifying place. And the fear can eat every bit of humanness in us. So this is what we're supposed to do. Trust the angels. They always say, do not be afraid. Preston Hollow, you do more right than you can keep up with. And the whole church is watching you for inspiration and hope. But we know our calling is huge. We are called to live the life of Jesus himself, and it is hard. And you're wise enough to know we're not always going to get it right. But keep on being the church. Keep on being the church in these scary days. For these are our days. So be the church as best you know how. And maybe in our faulting, embarrassingly inadequate witness, we can offer a glimpse of what it looks like to live unafraid. Because this is true. Jesus Christ is alive. And he's going ahead of us. And he's begging us to follow him. So follow. And remember... You don't have to be afraid anymore. Pray with me. Gracious God, we believe. Help our unbelief. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.
may be seated. Family of God, as we turn our attention towards the installation of Sarah R., may we remind ourselves of the many unique and diverse ways God has blessed all of us. Please join me in the litany of gifts inspired by Romans 12, printed in your bulletin. As in one body, we have many parts, and, e and each part has its own function. So all of us together with Christ are one body, and we all belong to each other. We have different gifts. If your gift is to hear God's word, if your gift is service, if your gift is the heart of a teacher, let preachers preach with conviction and givers give freely. Let us not lack for enthusiasm, but be ardent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in suffering, constant in prayer, supporting one another, and welcoming all. Friends, I am David Shapers, the vice moderator of Grace Presbytery, and on behalf of Grace Presbytery, I I bring you greetings this morning. It's my special privilege to be here in the church where my daughter was baptized and where I was ordained 10 years ago. Um, I was ordained to go to the church in Charleston, South Carolina, where Sarah's dad served as the associate pastor a few years before me. So um, I love the way that we are connected as Presbyterians. Today, I also serve as the moderator of the Administrative Commission to install Sarah R.R. Sarah, why don't you come on up? Friends, in her baptism, Sarah was clothed with Christ and is now called by God through the voice of the church to enter upon the ministry in this place. We remember with joy our common calling to serve Christ, and we celebrate this call of God through our sister, Sarah. So Sarah, now it is my job to present you with the questions of installation. Are you ready? Do you trust in Jesus Christ, your Savior, acknowledging him Lord of all and head of the church, and through him believe in one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Do you? Do you accept the scriptures of the Old and New Testament to be, by the Holy Spirit, a unique and authoritative witness to Jesus Christ in the church universal and God's word to you? Do you? I do. Do you sincerely receive and adopt the essential tenets of the Reformed faith as they are expressed in the confessions of our church as authentic and reliable expositions of what scripture leads us to believe do and will you be instructed and led by those confessions as you lead the people of God do you and will you I do and I will with God's help will 
fulfill your ministry in obedience to Jesus Christ under the authority of Scripture, continually guided by our confessions. Will you? I will. Will you be governed by our church's polity, and will you abide by its discipline? Will you be a friend among your colleagues in ministry, working with them, subject to the ordering of God's word and spirit? Will you? Will you in your own life seek to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, love your neighbors, and work for the reconciliation of the world? Will you? I will. Do you promise to further the peace, unity, and purity of the church? Do you? I do. Will you pray for and seek to serve the people with energy, intelligence, imagination, and love? Will you? I will. Will you be a faithful teaching elder, proclaiming the good news in word and sacrament, teaching faith and caring for people? Will you be active in government and discipline, serving in the councils of the church? And in your ministry, will you try to show the love and justice of Jesus Christ? Will you? I will. Good answers. <laughs> The relationship between a pastor and a congregation is twofold. Sarah makes promises to us to be as faithful as she can, and we in turn make promises to her. Thus, do we, the members of the church, accept Sarah R. as our associate pastor, chosen by God through the voice of this congregation to guide us in the way of Jesus Christ? Do, you, do we agree to pray for and to encourage her to respect her decisions and to follow as she guides us, serving Jesus Christ, who alone is head of the church. Do we promise to pay her fairly and provide for her welfare as she works among us, to stand by her in trouble and share her joy? Will we listen to the words she preaches, welcome her pastoral care, and honor her authority as she seeks to obey and honor and obey Jesus Christ our Lord? This time I'm going to ask the members of the Administrative Commission, the Installation Commission, to please stand. Here's a question for you. Do we, the members of this commission, acting on behalf of Grace Presbytery, promise in reliance upon the grace of God to support this pastor and this congregation with our prayers and our actions, to the end that their ministry together may be fruitful, strengthening the Church of Jesus Christ and bringing glory to God. Do we? We do. At this time, I'm going to invite anyone who is an ordained elder within the Presbyterian Church USA to come forward to lay hands on Sarah as we prepare for the prayer of installation.
Oh my, my dear Sarah, 
What an honor and a gift it is to be present with you today and also to offer your charge. Matthew reminded us as the commission gathered before that this is the first time that we've done this. And I thought, surely he's had one too many cups of coffee or maybe not enough. But he meant this is not the first time that we have installed a pastor at this congregation, but that this is the first time that we have installed a pastor for youth and young adults. So what a gift it is to be a part of that moment. In a recent episode of his podcast, Revisionist History, Malcolm Gladwell shared that he only has two rules for life. Without stretching the point of either too far, I think that they both contain wisdom not only for living a good life, but for leading well in ministry. So I'd like to adopt Malcolm Gladwell's two rules for living as a two-point charge, and then add a third rule of my own. Charge and rule number one, pull the goalie. Pulling the goalie is one of the more dramatic moves in hockey. Yes, this is a sports metaphor, my dear sporty Sarah, hang in. <laughs> Pulling the goalie happens in a do or die moment in which a team's goaltender is removed from the game and is replaced with an additional attacker. The strategic play is traditionally credited to coach Art Ross in a 1931 playoff game between his Boston Bruins and the Montreal Canadiens. Down 0-1 to one with a minute to play, he sent goaltender Tiny Thompson to the bench and inserted a sixth attacker. It didn't work. There was no more scoring and Boston lost. But a tradition was born. Actually, two traditions, really. One good and one not so good, at least according to Gladwell. He'll tell you that his friends and quantitative analysts Clifford Asmus and Aaron Brown will point out that pulling the goalie is the good part. It's a sound strategic move. But waiting until there is one minute left to play is not. Using mathematical data, Asmus and Brown argued that the best time to risk pulling the goalie is actually much, much later. Statistically speaking, to have the best chance of winning, a team down by one goal should pull the goalie with five minutes and 40 seconds to go. A team down by two goals should pull its goalie with 11 minutes and 40 seconds left to play. Now, if you are not a hockey fan, you may not appreciate what is being offered. 11 minutes and 40 seconds left to play with no goaltender. No one, no one in all of hockey does that, nor would they. Why? Well, think Pete Carroll and the Seattle Seahawks Super Bowl debacle. The Seahawks coaching staff decides to let Russell Wilson throw the ball from the one yard line with just 30 seconds left in a game and Seattle is trailing 28 to 24. As you likely know, Wilson throws an interception, and the Patriots go on to win the Super Bowl. Now, if you ask Asmus and Brown, they will tell you that mathematically, quantitatively, rationally, the call that Pete Carroll made was the right play call. And yet, 
That play started a national debate that will probably go on in bars around this country for the rest of time. How do you not give Marshawn the ball on the one-yard line? People will want to know forever. Pulling your goalie with 11 minutes and 40 seconds left to play would not only be risky, but entirely disagreeable. Fans would likely boo you out of the stadium. No coach wants to risk looking like a fool for the potential of losing 14 to 0 by pulling the goalie when you could leave the goalie in, keep the status quo, and lose a much more respectable one to nothing. Even if pulling the goalie with 11 minutes and 40 seconds is in fact the best way for your team to maximize the probability of winning. Being disagreeable is hard. Especially when the world around you will encourage you, even reward you, to do the easy thing, the agreeable thing. So I think Gladwell is right. Sometimes to coach well, to invest well, to lead well in ministry, you have to do the strategically risky thing, which also happens to be the hard thing, the unpopular thing, the courageous thing, the disagreeable thing. You have to be the bold type. You have to ask questions when everyone else accepts the answers. You have to speak up, you have to speak out. You have to be the artist, the well-self-differentiated pastor, the poet, the prophet. You have to call the play. So rule number one, pull the goalie. Number two, call your Aunt Sally. Malcolm Gladwell's second rule for living is just as important as the first. It also comes from the wisdom of his friend and qualitative analyst, Cliff Asmus. In addition to being the mathematical and philosophical genius with a high tolerance for disagreeableness, Cliff also has a beloved Australian aunt who calls him once a year to find out when she should convert her Australian dollars to wherever she is going on vacation that year. Cliff knows that mathematically speaking, there really isn't a right answer. Sure, quantitative analysts have views on currency, but they're micro. They only have a 51% chance of being right. In other words, it doesn't really matter when Cliff's Aunt Sally exchanges her currency. But she is certain that he has the right answer. He is the smartest, wisest person that she knows, and he's her nephew. So she keeps calling. And Cliff Asmus always answers. And he always helps her. He does the agreeable thing. Why? Because Sally is his aunt. And he loves her. Sometimes to lead well in life, in investing, in ministry, you have to do the agreeable thing. You have to hold off doing the strategically risky, mathematically correct thing because the relationship always matters more than being right. You have to meet people where they are because you've been called to walk beside them on the journey 
and if the entire stadium of hockey fans empties out because you're always pulling the goalie with 11 minutes and 40 seconds left, there really won't be any hockey game at all. Doing the relational thing, the agreeable thing, the kind and loving thing in a culture that fuels divisiveness and makes us believe that there is only an us and a them is hard. Because it requires that you love people well and that by the grace of God, you cultivate a third way. You demand that people are known and treasured first and foremost as children of God. You make sure that all people have a place at the table, that voices are honored. Because the strategically risky work is done together as the body of Christ. So you say yes when you want to say no. You pick up the phone when you'd rather send an email. You call your Aunt Sally. And the third. Create space to nurture deep faith. Sarah, you have more natural and nurtured gifts for ministry than almost anyone that I know. You are smart. You are intuitively gifted. You are kind. You are highly creative. You are emotionally healthy wise beyond your years, very organized, <laughs> and incredibly enthusiastic. But none of that really matters without a connection to the God who created you and claimed you in the waters of your baptism. Cultivating time and space for silence, for prayer, for creativity, for connection, in a world that values the efficient and the effective is hard. We cannot let the immediate crowd out the important. We cannot microwave relationships. We can't microwave deep faith either. So I finally charge you to find time to nurture a connection to the divine. Study scripture. Set aside time to pray, to read, to be in silence, to work out, to play your guitar, to enjoy a meal at a table with those who know and love you best. These are hard times, but it's not your job to save the church. It is your job to know and abide in the God who calls you here in the first place. So lead from there. Pull the goalie. Call your Aunt Sally. And remember the one who loves you and calls you and goes ahead of you all the days of your life. What a gift it is to call you friend and colleague and sister in Christ. Amen.
what we have, what has been given to us by God as a sign of our incredible gratitude. This is only the tip of the iceberg, a fraction of what we could respond, but we start here and pray that it changes us into even more generous people. Today's offering will support candidates of the ministry and word and sacrament in Grace Presbytery. Let us give with an open heart. Will the ushers please come forward? Storm. 